Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 38 through 48, the passage that we read during the Scripture reading. Now, we celebrated Christ's birth, and part of the announcement of Christ's birth was peace on earth, goodwill to men. Fast forward about 30 years from Christ's birth to the Sermon on the Mount, and what we find is Jesus sharing with us how we can attain that peace on earth, goodwill toward men in the Sermon on the Mount. When we look early on in the Sermon on the Mount, we see the Beatitudes, and a large portion of the Beatitudes is dedicated to peace. And now as we come to verses 38 through 48, we find that once again, Jesus is addressing practical applications of how we can have peace with others. And in addressing this, what he's talking about is righteousness and retribution. If you've lived very long in this world, you have been wronged by somebody, right? And a big part of us in our quest for righteousness is we want to get even. We want to even the score. That's only right, that's only just that if somebody wrongs me, that they experience discomfort and wrong as well. But what we find in this text is a new perspective. And what we learn is this, equality and fairness won't always happen. Live very long again in this world, and what do we find? Life isn't always fair. There are those things that happen where we are dealt with unfairly, unjustly, and we want retribution, we want to even the score, but that isn't always an option. So what do we do with that? How do I deal with being wronged by somebody and there's no redress for having been wronged? What we find in Jesus' words in this text is a perspective that He wants His disciples to have. Now, this is a a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about various ways in which the Pharisees would frame something and say, this is what's right, this is what's moral, this is what is just, and Jesus would address that by saying, no. The Pharisees have a misunderstanding of what God seeks, what God wants in any given situation. And in this one, he's addressing the idea of what the Pharisees said when they said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, when we look in the Scripture, we find that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is presented in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of passages that directly call for it in the law. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 23, it says this, But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And Leviticus is very much like it. It says, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done it, shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. What's going on? Is Jesus contradicting what the Old Testament said when it calls for this response? And I would submit to you, no, he's not, and here's why. 
When we look at the culture of the Middle East, the idea of the vendetta, the idea of paying back someone when they wronged you was ingrained in the culture. And what happened with the culture was this. When we assess what a person deserves when they have wronged us, we want to up the ante. We think that unless we get them back real good, they're going to do it again and again and again. So I'll show them and I'll get them for what they did to me. So what happens? I get them for what they did to me. And then they say, man, you got me a lot harder than I got you. So you know what's going to happen? I'm coming back. And what would develop were feuds, and then the feuds would go generationally, and there were tribal wars as a result of this quest for one-upmanship. Let's keep things equal and level. You see, in another passage of Scripture, God shares with us His heart about forgiveness and abandoning vengeance because in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 it says this you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of our or your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself i am the lord this is what god wanted to put into place this love of neighbor this ability to abandon the grudge and let go of these things but what did people do they took vengeance anyway. And what God was doing in the passages that we read before was He was putting a boundary on that desire for vengeance. Really what God teaches us in His Word is this. Don't hold on to revenge. Don't hold on to that feeling, I've been slighted and I resent the person who hurt me and slighted me, because what happens when you do that, it's said, is they live rent-free in your brain. You can't advance, you can't move, you can't do anything. When you hold a grudge against somebody and you say, I can't be satisfied until things are even, whatever even is, right? then basically you are bound by that person. You are held captive until your perception of equality is met. God is saying to us in His Word and in the Sermon on the Mount that that way of thinking isn't in keeping with what God teaches. And that's what we're going to see as we continue in this text. Now, we move on to the next part of the passage, verse 39. And here in the 39th verse, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, but I say to you, so in contrast to what was taught, get even, Jesus is saying, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, as we come to this, this is shocking to us and to the hearers of Jesus as he shares this on the Sermon on the Mount. What do you mean, don't resist those who are evil? This caveat. Understand this. As Jesus says, do not resist those who are evil, he is speaking individually and not nationally. Okay? Nationally, there are requirements to stop evil. World War II, the growth of Nazi Germany needed to be stopped. That was an evil that was oppressing and crushing the people of the world. 
and it would have spread and advanced had not people stopped that process. But what Jesus is talking about here is personally. Someone does something that is evil toward you. The Scripture isn't saying, look at that and just say, ah, that's okay. But what it is saying, we need to look at the things that are done to us that are unjust, that are unrighteous, and not hold on to it. Not make that something that drives our every thought, our every passion, until we can somehow get even with the person who has perpetrated evil against us. What we want to do is stop that process, stop moving toward that way of thinking. Jesus is telling us that we need to instead, and look at this passage as it goes on, in that verse, it it goes on to say this in verse 39, do not resist the one who is evil, but if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We're going to experience injustices in this life. We are going to experience people who do unkind things, difficult things, insulting things to us, and we can't hold on to it. We can't seek to look at that other person and say, I can't be satisfied until this is redressed. We have to be able to let go of that and move on with life and to focus on the Lord. Now, in this text, when it says, when someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to him, the other one. Many have taken this to mean that there is something that is said here about being nonviolent. Understand this. In the first century, when someone slapped someone across the face, it was more about insult rather than injury. And what he's saying is this. If someone insults you, don't feel that you have to crawl down into the gutter and insult them back. Absorb their insults and go on. That's the idea. That's what living in peace means. For many of us, we look at it and say, oh, I've got a whopper. I can lay it right back at you. And then what happens? Back and forth, give and take, you wind up in a situation to where you are breeding hatred and division by playing that game. Jesus is saying here, absorb those insults, and here's the idea. Rather than me looking at those insults and saying, I will get even, I release those insults to God. And I say to God, vindicate me. Help me to be the person who loves even the unlovely and overcome those evil words with good. This is how God wants us to operate as His kingdom people. You see, often what happens is when we're wronged, when we're insulted, we look at the other person and we say, out of competition or even pride, I don't want people to think they got the best of me. And so I have to do something public to show everybody that that other person didn't get the best of me. But really, when we look at it, that's a fool's errand because it never stops, it escalates. 
One insult turns into a response. That response turns into further insult. And it goes back and forth without resolution. What Jesus is saying in this text is stop the process. Don't be party to allowing that process to persist. This is what Jesus calls his followers to do. Then we come to verse 40. And in verse 40, we find Jesus teaching us something else about showing kindness and decency and grace to other people. Rather than just absorbing the things that people do to us that are unjust and that are flat out wrong, what Jesus says is this, do something extra. Not only absorb those insults, but extend grace to those who wrong us. Now, this is so counterintuitive to us as fallen human beings, isn't it? Okay, I'll take what they say and not hit back. But now I've got to be nice to them? Now I've got to show grace to them? Look at what Jesus says in verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now here, Jesus is talking about an altercation in the courtroom. And basically, the idea is this. You are at odds with somebody in a civil matter, and the person wins, and they take everything down to your tunic. And by the way, if we were to roughly translate tunic, that would be your underwear. So they sue you so much, they, they take even your underwear. That's the idea. But look at what Jesus says. If anyone should take your underwear, your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, here Jesus is not advocating nudity. All right? Not the point of what Jesus is saying. But what he's saying is this, once again, don't hold on to your resentment toward the person who takes the material possessions even that you have. Don't hold on to it and hate and resent. Now, the outer garment was so important to the people of Jesus' day that even in the Old Testament, there was a responsibility to not take a person's outer garment. It says in Exodus 22, verse 26, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, now cloak would roughly translate the outer garment, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Now, here's the thinking. The outer garment was that which functioned as a blanket. Um, often they would scoop things up and carry it in their outer garment. The outer garment was an essential part of their property. And so what he's saying is this. If you have held it as a pledge, in other words, it's a down payment on something, don't hold on to it past sundown because they may freeze to death without their outer cloak. Verse 27 goes on to say, for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So God was concerned about the needs of the individual, but what he's saying is this, release that to God. Trust God in that if somebody takes your tunic Give them your outer cloak as well. It was a way of illustrating, a way of expressing to us that we're to hold our possessions lightly. That we are not to elevate our possessions 
above the desire that we have to love one another and care for one another and show kindness. If someone takes your possessions, don't hold on to that resentment. Don't look at them and say, I will hate you forever, but show grace. Something else that Jesus teaches as we move on in the text in verse 41, and that is exceed what is asked of you. Look at verse 41 and look at the example that Jesus gives of exceeding what is asked of you. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, those of you who have studied this text before know what Jesus is talking about. Israel was under Roman occupation. And so here is this Roman army camped out in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Israel. And one of the Roman laws was if a Roman soldier conscripts you as a Jewish citizen to carry his pack for a mile under law, you had to do that. Now the Romans put this into place just to show the Jewish population who was in control. They would humiliate them, demean them, and this Jewish citizen was required to carry that pack. And so what Jesus is saying is, look, if there's somebody who asks you to do something to demean you, don't take umbrage but literally go the extra mile with them. Show grace. Show mercy. Show compassion. Now, we look at this and we say, yeah, yeah, those, those Jewish people, they really needed to do that with those Roman soldiers. They needed to just suck it up and walk that extra mile, right? But let's move this up into our time. Suppose you have a boss who's unreasonable, And they ask you to do something in a nasty way. You know what my inclination would be? Yeah, I'll do it. And just that. I'm going to do as little as I can get away with because I resent you. You know what God is saying? As a follower of Jesus Christ, we would look at that and say, yes, I will do that. And I will do not just that, but more. You see, we're representing the king of kings, the prince of peace, and it's not about us, it's about him. So what Jesus is asking of us is to represent him well. And even if it comes at humiliation, as followers of Jesus Christ, we look at that and we say, I will trust God to sort that all out, but as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to do what is asked of me. That's a huge perspective for us to put into place. Now, the last one, I have to chuckle. In verse 42, it says that we are to give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. God must have a great sense of humor this morning. Before I came in to preach this part of the passage, I had four phone calls, three phone calls, of people asking for money from the community. It was amazing how parallel the stories were 
as far as they were asking. Is Jesus really saying to us that whenever there's an opportunity for someone to ask of us, we're to give to them? Any given week, we see television commercials, we see mail coming for this cause or that cause, asking us to give money toward those things. Um, we, we come to church and, and you're asked to uh, give to the benevolence fund and, and the pastor's Christmas gift and your regular offering. What gives? What's going on here when Jesus says that we're to give to the one who begs to us? What the Word of God wants us to understand is this. We need to have a generous heart. He isn't saying that we are to indiscriminately give to anyone who asks, what he's saying is have an open heart of generosity. In the book of Deuteronomy, the law says this, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That's the overriding principle. And if there is genuinely someone in need, then we need to give to that person with a generous heart. But there are also people who would rather beg than work. And this isn't my thought or my word. This is according to the Word of God. See, in the book of Thessalonians, the Scripture says this, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. No such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Here's the idea. There is balance in Scripture and what it teaches. God wants us to have a generous heart, but God also wants us to be wise in the way that we manage the resources that He gives to us. There is a call for us to assist, but there is not a call for us to enable. And the idea of enabling is we would allow a person to persist in a lifestyle that rejects the value of work, that rejects the value of responsibility. In supporting a person who chooses to live irresponsibly, we are not helping that person, we're harming them. So what Jesus is speaking of in this text is the importance of a generous heart, a giving heart, one that seeks to help those who are legitimately in need around us. Now, the text goes on, and as we come to verse 43, we find that Jesus moves on to the next subject, and that is loving our enemies. And in verses 43 through 45, what we see Jesus command us to do is to exemplify the love of God. Look carefully at this text and see what it says. You have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this was the perspective, again, of the Pharisees, this group of people who opposed Jesus, who tried to teach 
an outward righteousness rather than an inward righteousness. And this is what Jesus says in response to them at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What Jesus is telling us in this text is this. Don't look at one who stands opposed to you, an enemy, and say, I reject you, I hate you. God is a God of love who reaches out to those who reject Him and are even described in Scripture as enemies of God, and yet He loves them anyway. The book of Romans shares this with us. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, but... God shows His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for His enemies. Christ died for those who would reject Him and spurn Him. What Christ is calling us to is a type of love, and the word that's used for love in the original language in this text is a word that means unconditional love. In other words, not looking at a relationship and saying, I will love you as long as I get something out of it, But looking at a relationship and saying, I will choose to love you even if you are being very unlovable. We are called to love our enemies. And then look at the next one, pray for those who persecute you. A persecution means they're pursuing you. They're coming after you. And what am I to do when a person is after me? I'm to pray for them. Now, I've had people that I've been at odds with. And I've said, God, how, how, do I, how do I love this person who's being unfair to me, who's hurting me, or even worse, hurting my family? How in the world do I deal with this? And you know what I've found? That if I can pray for that person, I can see not that person change, but my heart change. See, the prayer that we give here isn't a prayer, God, change this jerk. Make them less jerky. You know, not the idea. What God is saying to us is pray for their good. It's awfully hard to hate somebody that I'm praying for. And I mean praying for God's blessing in their lives. Praying that they will come to know God, not so that my life can become easier, but because they have a life that needs to be changed and their sinful behavior is demonstrating that they need God in their life. That's what God calls us to in this text when He says that we are to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now here, the Word of God is not saying that as I respond to people who are awful to me with love, that I become a son of the Father. What He's saying is I demonstrate myself to be a son of the Father. This is how God responds to people. And this is how God wants me to model His love to other people. God wants people to see a practical application of God's love in life situations. And the hardest life situation we can enter into is a broken relationship with an antagonist. Everything in my human nature says, let them have it. Don't put up with that. 
But what God's word teaches is endure and love and release that situation to God. There have been situations where I have been wronged by people, accused falsely by people. And it hurt, and I wanted to see fairness take place. But what God taught me in those situations and their valuable lessons is let go of it. Stop holding on to it. Show love, God's love, that supernatural love that I'm incapable of, but that God can produce in and through me. Direct that toward the people who have wronged me. Look at verse 46. Verse 46 goes on to say this, everyone should be loved, even those who don't love us. Now, this piggybacks on what I was just saying, but look carefully at the 46th verse. The 46th verse goes on to say, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Now, here Jesus is making an important point to His people. Who doesn't love people that love them? Now, when people think I'm great, they've got a real place in my heart, (laughs) you know? That's a great person. They see quality, right? (laughs) That's the way we respond. But when somebody doesn't like me, isn't it easy to say, I have no use for that person. If they don't like me, I don't like them. So you can just die for all I care. That's the way we feel. That's the way we respond. Jesus is telling us in this text, kingdom people live differently. If all I'm doing is loving those who love me, even the tax collectors do that. Now for us, I'm thinking, ask somebody who works for the IRS, it's kind of a mean job, but whatever. That's not what it's talking about. The tax collectors were cheats in Jesus' time. The Romans would assess a tax. The tax collector would go to collect the Roman tax, but say the Roman tax is 8%, they would go to someone and say, you know, you owe 15%, and I'm here to collect. They would skim seven, and give eight to the Roman government. They were hated by the people around them. So when he said tax collectors, that would raise the hackles on all of the people who heard it. And what he's saying is this, these people that you reject, you're in the same league as them if you just love those who love you. God wants us to be Loving people that love beyond human capability, drawing upon the resources of God as we interact with other people. This is how God wants His people to live. Finally, look at verse 48. You therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is a challenging passage of Scripture. God is perfect, holy, consistent, lives in love. God is gracious and merciful. In fact, what we saw earlier is He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is the way God loves, 
even those who are against him and opposed to him, he shows grace toward. What God is saying to us in this text is we're to strive for perfection in these areas. Now, the obvious question, will any of us hit it? And the obvious answer is no. But here's something I've discovered. If you aim high, you hit a lot higher than if you aim low. God wants us to be people who strive for excellence when it comes to obedience in the kingdom. So, what am I to do as a follower of Jesus? I am to pursue peace. I am to let go of malice and anger. I am to trust God to make things right and just. In the Old Testament, there was the story of Jonah. Remember that story? The guy who was swallowed by the whale? Well, right after the whale incident, he went to Nineveh, a place that was a perennial enemy of the people of his day. And as a prophet, he went to them and warned them of God's coming judgment. And he warned them. And I think he was kind of hoping that it wouldn't work out so that God would judge them severely. But what happened? They repented and God forgave. And anybody remember Jonah's response? Oh man, I knew that would happen. You see, we want judgment for everybody else, but we want mercy <laughs> for ourselves, right? Jonah, case in point. But what we find in this text is a call to be that person who wants mercy for others and demonstrates the mercy of God in the way that we conduct ourselves with others. Now, this is a tough passage of Scripture to put into practice. But what God is saying to us is this, elevating God, living in a way that glorifies God, living in a way that promotes peace, that's God's goal for all of us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's especially His goal for you. So as I looked at this text, I look and I see a challenge for us who live in a fallen world, we're going to rub shoulders with people that are wronging us, yes, even when we drive. And we have to ask ourselves, how do I respond in a fallen world? How do I best represent Jesus Christ? And Christ lays it out for us clearly in this passage of Scripture. Heavenly Father, thank You for this text, and thank You for the reminder that it is to us all that we are to live in a way that evidences the love of God, that we are to live in a way that trusts You to take care of retribution, not exacting revenge on our own, but releasing those things to You. And trusting you, God, to show love and mercy and, yes, even recompense where it is due. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.